You're listening to American Girl Women with Laura Treader and Lindsay Adams-Franca. This is a podcast where two millennial gals gather around the microphone and reminisce on the cultural phenomenon that took our childhood by storm, American Girl Dolls. Contrary to what you might think, we aren't just talking about dolls here. We're diving into the high highs and the low lows of getting hooked on American Girl and all the childhood memories that come flooding back. So join us and a few special guests each week as we become American Girl Women. Today on American Girl Women, we are joined by Erin Donahue, a New York-based freelance writer who recently helped launch East Wing Magazine, an online publication that explores the stories of America's first ladies past and present from a feminist perspective. Erin's past experience includes working as a local news reporter in the D.C. area, as well as a national reporter for CBSNews.com, covering criminal and social justice. She has also had her work published in Smithsonian Magazine. Growing up in Connecticut, Erin loved reading and always knew she wanted to be a writer. She even had her first story published in American Girl magazine, winning a writing contest for her story, The Girl Who Became a Ghost, featured in the July-August 1994 issue. We are thrilled to have her join us today to hear all about her experience with American Girl. Erin, welcome to AGW. Hi, I'm so excited to be here and talk with you guys about American Girl. We're so excited to have you, and I feel like Lindsay and I have been buzzing with excitement over getting you on the podcast, and I think that our listeners are going to be buzzing as well because we posted um, a story a while back that you had submitted to American Girl Magazine as a young girl, and the responses in our comment section were insane. Everybody connected with this story on some level. Um, And we feel so lucky that we get to hear all about it directly from you. It's really amazing to see how much response the story has gotten, especially since it was so long ago that it was published. (laughs) Um, And I read a lot of those comments and it's just really, I just feel super honored (laughs) that that people uh, resonated that much with the story. Totally. I like can't recall another story that we've posted that like immediately the comments were rolling in saying that it was a core memory from them like they loved it they remembered it it terrified them they were inspired it ignited their imagination like we had such like strong reactions from our community and it was so incredible to see and we had several requests to have the author on our podcast and I am just so thrilled to First, reach out to the correct Aaron. We <laughs> had some sleuths in our comment section. I don't know if you saw that, but um, we're just so thrilled that you responded to our email and we're having this conversation today. So thank you so much, Aaron, for joining us tonight. So happy to be here. Well, before we get into the story, to set the stage a bit, Aaron, what were you like growing up? So I was an only child. So I spent a lot of time by myself, just sort of in my own weird little worlds, like doing a lot of reading, doing a lot of writing. Um, I was super obsessed with The Little Mermaid for a long time with my good friend, Amy. We would like reenact The Little Mermaid, basically the whole plot of the movie in her backyard (laughs) and like fight over who had to be Ariel and who had to be Sebastian the crab. But yeah, I think that was, as I started to get a little bit older, I was really into to scary stories, spook culture. Um, I watched a lot of like 
you know, Are You Afraid of the Dark? On Nickelodeon, I read Scary Stories to Be Told in the Dark. I was into a lot of pretty dark YA thrillers when I was a kid. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I really just kind of was interested, I think, in, in almost like immersing myself in different worlds, um, especially if they were spooky or weird that just really appealed to me (laughs) (laughs) right I'm right there with you we talked about this before we hit record but like the 90s were just such a prime time for like getting scared it's something that has carried with me throughout my life like I love ghost stories like right now the Jezebel scary story contest is happening which I look forward to every year um (laughs) but yeah these like early like memories of connecting with something that was like supernatural or like kind of like these elements that were being introduced to um something that was otherworldly were just so appealing definitely and I think also just the I was interested in sort of the the heroine there was always a heroine usually at the center of these stories Mm -hmm. so it was really fascinating to me to to read about you know, girls who are my age who are having these crazy experiences with ghosts or ESP or or whatever else. Um, Yeah, it was just, I could not get enough of it. (laughs) Right. That's a good point. Like, are you afraid of the dark really centered on like young, like kids or teens, like really put them at the center of these ghost stories? Do you like remember any of the, are you afraid of the dark stories that you were particularly drawn to? Yeah. I remember there was a story about this radio station and it everybody's like where is this radio station being broadcast from there's just like this weird like old-timey music on it and then it turns out it's like coming from the cemetery and like a dead guy is like broadcasting the radio station from like beyond <laughs> the grave it's just oh crazy. my god is this the one with Gilbert Godfrey and um possibly, Ryan yes. Gosling possibly <laughs> I can't remember but maybe. I have to look oh my up. gosh I was like <laughs> never brave enough to watch are you afraid of the dark regularly? I remember every time it would come on, I'd like take it a little further. Like I'd watch like (laughs) just like the first few seconds of the intro that I'd watch like the whole intro. But I remember one episode, which was probably one of the only ones I ever watched had something to do with like a carousel and like the horse, one of the horses on the carousels. I was like this blue, like orb and I feel like somehow it connected back to like colonial times like I need to look it up because I wish I remembered more but I remember being very scared but I do think that in our middle childhood when we were probably like in middle or elementary school books about scary things seemed so much more manageable than like watching scary things I think for some of us and I definitely gravitated towards like reading scary stories way more than watching them so I feel like you know any kind of reading material that had like a spooky flair was like a great entry point to that if you weren't quite ready to like watch a scary movie or show (laughs) Yeah, definitely like some of those early novels had the illustrations too. So it was almost like you got even a little bit more freaked out 
imagining it yourself with the help of these very vivid illustrations. Right. Yes. Oh yeah, my like, goodness. To be told in the dark had just those sort of notoriously freaky. They're, they're so creepy. Like even yeah. looking at them today, they like whew, immediate fear. But totally. like, I love how like, there was just like kind of like levels of like introductory ghost stories. Like the girl with the green ribbon isn't yes. that scary. <laughs> but like when I read it, when I was six or seven, I was like, oh my God, this is terrifying. <laughs> like it was just like, you know, kind of dipping your toe into that world. Oh, yeah. I think that even just a year or two makes a big difference at that age of like your scare level. (laughs) Seriously. It always blows my mind, like how many like just like common scary stories there are that like kids read in school too. like Sleepy Hollow. I used to find to be quite scary. Even a Christmas Carol is kind of scary, to be honest. Ooh, I haven't thought of that in a scary way, but. It kind of is. Lindsay, you haven't thought about the story of a man who's visited by four different ghosts, one of whom is just like a grim reaper. Like, it was you not scary to you? I feel like when I, whenever I think about it, I think of the Muppet versions. <laughs> like, objectively not scary. <laughs> That's true. I think it depends on, like, what version you the visuals matter there for sure. And sometimes I think like if you're young enough, you don't even know enough to be scared like of certain Mm. things too. Definitely. The illustrations were one like super cool thing about uh, the story that I had published and like how cool it was to be a kid at that age and sort of see your story kind of like come to life with this very beautiful yet dark illustration yeah, um, and it was amazing. Still, like, blows my mind to this day that they like took so much time and care and effort that they put into bringing the story to life. Yeah. Oh my god, truly. Well, let's get into it. So, for those unfamiliar with your story, Erin had a story published in American Girl magazine called "The Girl Who Became a Ghost," and we will actually be playing a recording of it after our conversation. So, please stay tuned until the very end. But, Erin. This was a writing contest that American Girl had where they gave a prompt earlier in the year to start off the stories with that I have here. It was Jamie had warned her a thousand times, but she never listened. So you could kind of take this in any direction that you want. And from what we've seen with the other contest winners, different directions were taken. But (laughs) could you tell us a bit about the contest from your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I think at that time in my life, I had been writing a lot of short stories. um, And my dad had, you know, just kind of gotten the magazine one day from the mail and showed it to me and noticed that they were, you know, having a call out for short story contests. Um, And I was like, okay, awesome. And I, according to my dad, went up to my room and wrote the story in like an hour, an hour and a half. And which is kind of weird to me looking back on it. But he said, he asked me later, like what my, what the hardest part of the writing the story was. And apparently I said something like coming up with the name of the character. And he was like, who cares about that? Like that's kind of <laughs> lame. Um, but yeah, I think I, I just did it kind of on a whim, submitted it because I don't know, it just, just seemed like it would be something that that you would sort of dream would happen but you never think will actually happen you know what I mean 
Sure. Yeah. So I, I think there were a few rounds, like there was, you know, a finalist round where they got in touch with me and they were like, you're a finalist, you know, you're, I think one of 20. And I don't remember the phone call, but I remember like hanging up the phone, like my parents, like beige, like rotary dial, like well mounted, <laughs> like phone, like hanging it up and just like losing my mind. Like, <laughs> out, like, I'm so excited. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah. When you were writing the story, were you like, did you submit like a handwritten copy? Yeah, I did. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, that's what my dad said. I don't remember. But yeah, apparently I did. <laughs> it's just kind of crazy to think about that now, it right? Crazy. It's totally <laughs> crazy, especially as a writer and everything I do is on the computer. I can't imagine doing something handwritten at all. Right, totally. Do you, so knowing that like you wrote this in a fairly short time, like, do you think that you had this idea bubbling up inside of you previously? Like, have you written scary stories before this? Yeah, I had definitely written a lot of scary stories and was also, I'm sure, reading a ton of scary stories as well. So I'm sure it came from somewhere that I was either writing or reading (laughs) at the time, like blended together. Yeah. Totally. And just for a little background for our listeners before Mm -hmm. they hear it later on in the episode, but can you give a brief synopsis of the story? Sure. So it starts off with a girl named Lydia and the the warning is given to her by her brother, Jamie, that she shouldn't go to this place called Dead Man's Creek um, because he thinks it's haunted, but she doesn't listen. So she's kind of in this sort of ritual of going to this creek every day and she comes across this girl who is, uh, we find out later, a ghost. Eventually what happens is the ghost girl kills the real girl. <laughs> and it happens in sort of an unexpected way because the um, the heroine, the protagonist, is like actually attempting to save her from this creek, which is how this girl drowned in real, died in real life as she drowned. Um, so she was trying to save her and wound up being killed by her. So obviously pretty dark. <laughs> It honestly was truly so well written and had so many layers and was just, I feel like it it just really captured my attention and imagination. And I agree with everyone who commented, like it really is a core memory, like, and especially to have this written by a peer, it was just really Mm -hmm. incredible to kind of experience this ghost story. I feel like it should be a classic. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. That's so nice (laughs) of you to say. I really appreciate that. I feel like one of the things that makes it so compelling, especially at a young age, is that like the ghost character, I feel like is not like, you know, she ends up killing like our 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 main um, character in a way that it's like she couldn't be trusted the whole time. Like, I feel like it really like messes as a kid with like your sense of like justice and Mm -hmm. like, and like trust. Like, I don't know. I think that that's like one of the reasons why for me, I was like, this is like going to shake me (laughs) to my core (laughs) because it's so unexpected. I feel like. Right. I think also like I can understand how scary it would have been coming in American Girl Magazine, which clearly is not a place where you would expect to have a story like that published. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't see why it would have come out of left field for a lot of people, you know? <laughs> right. So after you submitted the story and got through to the final rounds and they finally made the call to tell you that, you know, your story was picked, what were 
next steps? Did they tell you when it was going to be put in the magazine? And did they tell you they were going to do illustrations as well? Um, the illustrations were a surprise, at least to me. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if they told my parents that, but um, I don't know the exact time frame. but my mom said it was a pretty long lead time between the time they told me I was a winner and the time it was published. She said it was about six months. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I just remember being just so excited apparently I got a letter and I from them and I was like waiting on the front stoop with my letter like waiting for my mom to come home so I could tell her that I won I was like so crazy excited wow <laughs> so sweet and what was it like seeing the actual issue it was incredible I I think for anyone really it's kind of a really special moment for a writer when you kind of see your violin imprint for the first time but for me to have that experience like at 11 was just like next level it was just like overwhelming like if I'd eaten like 20 candy bars and I had like a huge <laughs> sugar rush it was like that type of feeling <laughs> oh my goodness I bet that that's incredible were your friends aware like did you share with your friends that you had been published did any of them like get to read the story in real time um as the magazine came out was this something like you talked about at school that's a really good question and I unfortunately don't really remember that. Um, I do remember that, uh, shortly after this happens, so maybe like a year later, um, I moved to a completely new town where I like, didn't know anyone. And mm -hmm. this girl like approached me and she was like, Oh my God, like you're like, you're the girl that wrote that story in American Girl magazine. I was like, Oh my God. I, yeah, I am. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and we, we became friends after that. So that was really cool. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Wait, that is so impressive because I always felt like the American girl was putting people way too much on blast in the magazine with like their first last name in town and age. <laughs> um, but in this case, it kind of worked out. It worked out. Yeah. She was able was to the next yeah. yeah, she was I know. able to piece it together. Oh my God. Erin, I bet people are still talking about this story. Like we get comments all the time on our Instagram being like, I went to school with someone who was a paper doll. Like, I am sure your name is being like discussed every once in a while, like all these years later. Well, <laughs> yeah. Like knowing a celeb. That's funny. It's yeah. I don't obviously, I don't feel like that at all. It's funny. Cause it was like, it happened so long ago and I just completely forgot about it. You know, maybe there was definitely like a huge, it was a huge deal at the time, but I feel like it was mostly like, for me, it felt internal to my family. Like, you know, my grandmother freaked out and like bought all the copies <laughs> in the West Palm Beach, Barnes and Noble, whatever. But like, you know what I mean? But it, it didn't feel yeah. like, uh, like much of an impact beyond that. But then five years ago, I was just sitting at my desk um, at my job where I was working at CBS News as a reporter. And I get a call and it's this um, woman, Sarah Bridgens, who's a writer as well. And she was like, are you the same Aaron Donahue that wrote The Girl Who Became a Ghost in American Girl Magazine? And I was like, yes, I am. <laughs> and it was just funny because the newsroom is kind of like open and like everybody is kind of like, everybody can hear everything that's going on. So I'm sure yeah. that everybody around me was like, what kind of conversation is happening right now? But it was, it was great because I got to connect with Sarah and she wanted to write an essay about the story's impact on her and just also sort of tying it into me and how I worked as a crime reporter now. Um, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm a freelancer now, but, but um, anyway, I don't think that essay ever 
panned out. But what was cool was that me and Sarah definitely got to connect and talk about American Girl and talk about the magazine and how it sort of impacted both of our lives. Um, and we talked a lot about, you know, how it was really sort of a, a feminist sort of publication at the time when you didn't have a lot of that going on at all. So it was for both of us, I think, pretty influential. So yeah, so that was really cool. Absolutely. And just out of curiosity, because this is probably like something that most of us don't think about very often because the stories that we wrote in elementary school don't get published. (laughs) But um, did you remember still to this day, like, every detail of that story or did you have to kind of do you like have to revisit it from time to time or like has it stuck with you as well like all the plot points and characters and details yeah it it really didn't stick with I mean I I would have to make like a concerted effort to go back and like reread it like I reread it before the show and everything Mm -hmm. but but if I'm not prompted it just sort of goes into like the goop of everything else in my brain basically yeah yeah like it's like well I think probably like how a lot of people felt like who were resonating it with it in our comments was like maybe they didn't remember like every single detail about it but they remembered how it made them feel so they had (laughs) such a strong reaction to it um but yeah I was just curious about that because like you know obviously I don't remember every piece of writing I've ever created you know from childhood but Mm -hmm. you know for something like this that like had such an impact. Um, yeah, I was just curious if you you sort of kept it always in the back of your mind, but totally understandable, especially as a career writer, why that wouldn't be the case. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's sometimes just with other things that I write and I I come across it five years later and I have no recollection of writing it at all. It's just too, like, it's funny how like when you're a writer, you're just like putting out so much stuff and you have really sometimes no concept at all of like where it's going to land or what the, mm-hmm. you know, what the response is going to be at all. Most of the time it's nothing. So, so that's why when it does happen, it's like very surprising. <laughs> right. And now Aaron, from this story, there was a bit of um, aftermath that ensued from yes readers and parents that felt that this story was a bit too scary and a departure from the uh, more typical American Girl magazine content. And there was even um, a response in the letters from you section of the magazine. Was it the following month, perhaps, or soon after? Were you aware that there had to be like a statement issued or um, anything from the magazine? Um, Yeah, I I only knew sort of what anybody else reading the magazine would know and that I read yeah. that I read that um I guess it's a kind of an apology sort well it was a it was a letter from a girl who was upset that the story was too scary and she felt like she wanted to you know come to American Girl for like laughs and not scares which you know totally fair like understandable um and the um magazine published sort of a response to it and it, it was very thoughtful and it said something along the lines of like that shows the power of a story yeah. And, and I, I think that that was a great response. Um, but I think at the time I was just, I felt like I'd done something wrong. Like and <laughs> now looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, like if I could me, adult journalist, me could like have a little like mentor session with like writer <laughs> me, like that would right. be great. But like, I really was like upset. 
yeah, fair. Uh, the only thing that you did wrong was slay too hard on the story writing. <laughs> Thank you. No, I, I, it's so funny. Like I have so many mixed emotions about it, honestly, because it it's so like awesome that it had this impact. And that's obviously what like what a good story does. It has that type of impact and resonance with people. But at the same time, I really do honestly feel bad that very young girls were very scared by this and like to the point where it still affects them today like that I, I like don't feel good about that either <laughs> I I feel like it's almost like a rite of passage to be really scared by something like in the spooky realm as a kid um just like the are you afraid of the dark episode that I'm gonna have to look up after this because now it's gonna bother me that I don't remember it <laughs> but um I think I do kind of like find it funny that they had to like formulate a whole PR response and Lindsay works in PR. So I'm like, oh, Lindsay, you, you would have been the person at American Girl Magazine <laughs> trying to figure out how to respond to that girl's letter. <laughs> oh my goodness. And it, you know, it, it, it's interesting because there was another story published in the contest as a winner that was focused on witches like there mm-hmm. was a witch story as well but that was like not to the extent whatsoever like um that would have like that that impact I would imagine it was more I don't know a circumstantial witch but um Erin <laughs> you were actually Sarah had um connected with one of the founding editors of American Girl magazine Nancy Holyoke who vividly remembered publishing your story and shared some insight into the magazine at the time. Um, Were you surprised to hear Nancy's reaction and that she still remembered your winning entry? Yes, very, very much so. And I think it was also really interesting because so I connected with her as well as Sarah and and I um, got to hear sort of more of her perspective about what was happening behind the scenes when she was publishing the story and how she didn't really think much of publishing the story. She just thought it was a good story. I'm going to publish it. Um, and which is, I'm so grateful that she did. Um, but I don't think she was anticipating the fallout that came back. And it was interesting to hear some details about that, that I like literally had no idea was happening as a kid. And now, you know, as an adult, literally like a week ago, I'm like finding out what was going on. So it was interesting. <laughs> she, she was saying like, yeah, we didn't get a ton of, of um, negative complaints, but we got a few and they were very angry and they were like, cancel my subscription, <laughs> angry. Um, and that, you know, some of the pushback was from um, just, you know, people who didn't want their kids exposed to such a sort of dark world when they sort of entrusted American Girl with, you know, providing their daughters with this very sort of curated, safe, like positive world, which fair, you know, I understand that. Um, and then she said a small portion of the the pushback was also from conservative Christian parents who were sort of a big part of the subscriber base. And she said something along the lines of like, you know, the people that are banning, trying to ban books now will probably would have been among those people who were upset. I think the religious complaint was that ghosts and witches were seen as sacrilegious or irreligious mm-hmm. at the time. And, and that was what, you know, a portion of the complaints were as well. So yeah, she was kind of like, yeah, I don't regret publishing it, but it rocked, it certainly rocked the boat. And I think she was thinking at the time, she was just coming over from New York, working in literary adult literary magazines. She was kind of saying like, people would understand that this is a ghost story. And that was what I was thinking as well, that people would just think, oh, this is a ghost story. It's not real, you know, but right. she didn't, I think she said she didn't fully understand like how involved parents are with the type of content that 
they want their their kids exposed to and sort of like the level of pushback there would be essentially. Yeah, I would love to read a bit of a quote that she included um, because I think she really captured exactly what I was kind of trying to express earlier about like why the story I feel like is just so spooky Mm -hmm. but she talks about how it wasn't the type of story that readers expected to see in American Girl magazine and that was precisely what she liked about it Mm -hmm. Um, but her exact words were the narrator is undone by her own empathy and heroism and I feel like that is like so like real and like very <laughs> astute. And then, you know, she goes on to say like it that's, you know, that's why it deserved to be published because it was so unique. But I love that um, that Nancy's sticking by her guns. I and I love. Too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that she's kind of like, sorry for those people who didn't get it, but, you know, <laughs> everyone's entitled to their opinion basically is what she's saying right and I I mean it's such like it's the antithesis of a typical American girl story that like the brand is really built on with the historic characters of you know sharing that like being a friend like having like doing good deeds will get you far like it's kind of flipping that entirely from what we've seen from the from the brand so it's really I mean it's so interesting and I mean, it's objectively like a great piece of writing. I think it's just really remarkable that you wrote this at such a young age. And I just love that the editors at American Girl and Pleasant really saw the complexity of it to publish this, like despite it being like not in line necessarily with like their, their brand and like what was considered like a typical American Girl story. Yeah, for sure. And it it was really interesting um, that Nancy Holyoke said that Pleasant herself signed off on it, which apparently she did with everything in the magazine, at least, you know, when she was still involved with it before she sold it. Um, And, and, you know, she, Nancy was talking about Pleasant as kind of like this sort of fierce defender of the brand. And like, it was, you know, it was her brand. And it would, I would imagine that if anything would have raised alarm bells about it, or if she would have anticipated some crazy pushback that she wouldn't have signed off on it. So I'm not sure, you know, but it, but I'm so grateful to, to her and Nancy that they, they published it. And it was amazing to hear Nancy say that she doesn't, you know, regret it and that she thinks it was worthy of being published. So definitely really cool to, to have that happen. It was just one of those kind of crazy things. Yeah. And and Nancy seems like a hoot. I'd love to get a drink <laughs> yeah. with her. <laughs> it was Seriously. so interesting to, to chat with her after all this. I mean, I'd never contacted to talk to her in person before, but um, to talk to her as an adult and hear her perspective was really fascinating. Definitely. And now as, aside from the magazine, were you also interested in other elements of American Girl as well? Like, did you ever get into the books or the dolls? Yeah, I was to a certain extent. Um, I wasn't super into the dolls, although I did have um, Felicity, um, but I really wanted Molly secretly, but my <laughs> best friend Amy at the time had Molly. <laughs> and I felt like I, you know, if Amy has Molly, I need to get something different. It was just like one of those weird, like, uh, she was probably like the closest thing I had to a sister since I was um, an only child and we, she was yeah. my babysitter's daughter and we grew up together. So 
it was just kind of funny to think about that, about, you know, I, I think probably what attracted me both to Molly and to Felicity were sort of the spunkiness. You would always hear that about those two characters, that they were very mm-hmm. spunky and sort of feisty and just sort of not willing to, you know, go about life the way they were told, which, you know, I think is, I think that's definitely a, a great message to hear as a young kid. Absolutely. And now were you playing American Girls together or was it more of something that you sort of each had your own American Girl, but you weren't really like playing with them as like a group? It was more of like a solo thing. It was more of a solo thing. I mean, you know, we showed them off to each other and stuff, but I Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say we had like whole like play sessions or anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think we've we've kind of discovered through this podcast that there were like sort of a Venn diagram of different ways that people played with their (laughs) American girls and some preferred to play with others. Others preferred to play solo. Some were really chaotic with the mixing and matching of historical outfits. Some were very true (laughs) to the historic periods. So it's just always interesting to hear like what people's unique playing experience was with American Girl because it's it's kind of like different for everybody but there's like a spectrum of like organized to chaos essentially (laughs) (laughs) truly did you get into like collecting different outfits for Felicity like were you like circling everything in the catalog um I would say that I the catalog was definitely just this beautiful like worlds that I think it was kind of like anything else like with with my books or whatever that I was reading that like it sort of evoked this sort of like mood or like vibe or whatever and you just sort of yeah. wanted to live there right so like I think like a lot of other girls I spent a lot of time like looking through the catalog and wanting things in the catalog that I like could never get but like definitely you know picking out things that I would have wanted like I remember like Felicity's like canopy bed <laughs> that was for whatever yeah. reason I think I wanted a canopy bed for myself because something about them just seems very like romantic and magical. And then totally being like Felicity's, Felicity's canopy bed. I was like, I need that. But then yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, I number one, absolutely was into like any kind of canopy bed situation. Mm-hmm. But what I fantasized about doing was like closing all the curtains and like being in my own little (laughs) like world in there and that was like why I wanted the canopy bed and it's honestly it's such a good idea because it's like yeah like who wouldn't want to like have a little curtain like situation around their bed so they're just like all kind of like tucked in there and like then you don't have to have like the sun like shining on you in the morning like (laughs) why didn't we keep canopy beds around (laughs) I know I know and also some Sometimes with that gauze or whatever, it can just look so beautiful and mysterious. I, I, I remember those vividly. I had one of those and I feel like it like fell on me a couple <laughs> times in the middle of the night because like our house was really old. So the ceiling was like kind of like crumbly like and I remember like just several times like waking up to like the like big wooden hoop on top of me and I I was like 10 and I'm like that probably would have like scared the crap out of me now but at the time I was like oh no and I would just hang it up again um worth it worth it but I feel like I feel like American like the catalog was aspirational in that way like things like 
Felicity's bed or like her Christmas dress or even like her horse, like just resonated with a lot of people just by looking at them, even if you couldn't have them. Definitely. Yeah. And I think also like later when I was a kid catalogs, like catalogs aren't even a thing anymore, obviously, but they were, there were specific brands of catalogs, like Delia's was a big one when Mm -hmm. I was like a young teen. And it was the same type of thing. It would like evoke this world and you just wanted to be there. And therefore you wanted to buy all this shit. You know what I mean? Right. Mm -hmm. So it was the same thing with American Girl. (laughs) I really like that. I haven't really considered that like looking through a magazine is like such like a vibe and atmosphere. Like, yeah, I do a lot of eBay browsing for old catalogs from the late nineties, early two thousands. And like, anytime I get them, it just instantly like transports me back, um, to this time. But like thinking back to the original time that I was looking at them, even that like would bring me to a place. Like I loved getting lost in a catalog and American girl did that so well. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I love your guys's Instagram account where you're posting a lot of the old catalog pages because it's definitely like an amazing nostalgia boost, but it's, <laughs> but it's also, you can see how carefully they curated everything right. like, for a doll. Like it's crazy. It's not even for a person. It's for a doll. It's amazing. Right. You know? It, yeah. Yes. I know. Um, and there was like always that very like initial excitement, like when you'd get something like and being like, okay, like I'm going to set up like this bed for my Mm -hmm. doll. But then you'd be like, oh, but I don't have the entire like backdrop that is right. right. (laughs) So it's actually like not really giving the same vibe. But (laughs) yeah, you're never. Yeah, it's funny. That's like that's another thing with that is that you're never actually reaching this vibe on your own. Like you're always sort of right. like striving for it, but you're never actually getting there. And that's like part of the whole like consumerism thing. Right. But like, but it's truly <laughs> beautiful and nostalgic. Oh and my truly, God. I think that's ma- so true. I think maturity is realizing that, that looking at the catalog was almost more impactful than totally. getting anything from it. Totally. I would read that right now. Like if somebody gave that to me, I would just like have that, like read that with my coffee in the morning. Yeah, cover to cover. If I like the new catalogs don't hit the same as the old ones, mm-hmm. but like I mean Lindsay and I when before we even started this podcast just spent hours and hours over the period of several weeks just like combing through a catalog together and like noticing different things about it and it's like crazy how much you forget but also how many weird things you have kept in your brain all these yes. years right um with american girl and other catalogs like an old pottery barn teen catalog will do the same thing to me um, <laughs> that american girl does yeah right well the descriptions <laughs> in american girl for me that was like as good as a book like reading Definitely. through like every detail of the accessories and clothing items like it was it made such an impact and we've chatted about this on the podcast before but the fact that there was just ever so slightly like variance in the catalogs like everything was pretty much the same Mm -hmm. like from each catalog issue to the next and so it like really made that impact I think just being so consistent and like it was fun to see like what items you know were new mostly with like the new characters that were being added or like the modern dolls with American Girl of today but like the original like four or five dolls like had the same catalog like photo like editorial shoot like it just remains so consistent from like 
when they launched until like the late 90s. A while. Yeah. Yeah. Know? I would be curious to know if like from a sort of marketing psychological standpoint, like if that had an impact on on our on our collective memory, <laughs> just like <laughs> looking at the same catalog over right. over again for years. I know. Well, it's kind of interesting because Lindsay and I were into American Girl at somewhat different times. Um, mm-hmm. And I probably closed out my American Girl era in like 2003 or 2002. Mm-hmm. And so much of the things that I was looking at were actually the same as what Lindsay had been looking at because they kept so many of the so much of the same imagery especially like for the historic dolls and mm-hmm. I kind of love that like the girl of today stuff was always sort of rotating but I loved that like the historic dolls were basically consistent from like 1986 to 2004 I feel like or you know they'd add a new historic doll once in a while but even the new ones were formatted in the same way it's like there's the bedroom and the Mm -hmm. birthday and the winter um and those descriptions that they had like if you think about it even if you were you know really into the books usually I feel like you're you're sort of getting exposed to the character first and then maybe like feeling enticed to read the book. So like they have to make those descriptions, like make you want to read the books. There are like mini like stories almost. Um, And I feel like they tie them into the books really well. Like if you really went through and fact checked all those descriptions with like the book (laughs) plots, like they're, they line up, like they did not spare any detail there. (laughs) Totally. I'd be curious to know what the editorial process was like with all that. I literally wish that I could just like see their whole process from start to finish for the catalog and the magazine because so many people were involved and yet like I feel like the like there was not one detail out of place, which is pretty impressive. But yeah, I don't know. It's just really, really incredible. I, I want to know more. I want to know about the photo shoot process as well. Yeah, that's really cool. (laughs) Seriously. Now, Erin, going back to kind of your career a bit, could you tell us a little bit more about the journey you had from writing as a child to, you know, pursuing this as a career? Sure. Um, Yeah, so I would say that I pretty much always knew I wanted to be a writer. So from around age seven, I I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, I was pretty laser focused on it. But I I think the, you know, story being published in American Girl certainly helped with that, just like the confidence level of it. But there, there certainly there were other elements, you know, I had like a really supportive, like, network, family and teachers, that type of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but I would say in some way, I knew that I wanted to pursue writing, like throughout my whole young ish life. And I wound up going to college for journalism or well, I guess technically it was called writing literature and publishing was the major. And then I went back to grad school for journalism. Um, And I think, you know, it's interesting. I sort of went from fiction to nonfiction, just assuming that that was the way I I needed to go to make money (laughs) as a writer in the Mm -hmm. world, you know, yes and no, knowing that, knowing what I know now, but um, that's sort of the direction I was just decided to go in and and looking back now, I wonder if maybe I should have pursued more of a creative writing trajectory, but you know, honestly, I'm just like grateful that I'm able to write professionally. I mean, it's super cool. Um, so I was in local news in DC for 
um, a few years after I graduated grad school. And then I moved up to New York City and I was a national reporter for CBS News um, covering criminal social justice. Um, and then about two years ago, I went freelance. And um, that's it's been a really fun transition because I've been able to like sort of branch out all over the place with my writing. And um, I've done like astrology and all sorts of weird stuff. Um, but one cool thing I did recently was I helped um, my good friend and colleague, Jen Taylor, launch um, East Wing Magazine. So that's a new digital publication. And it's basically exploring the stories of America's first ladies from more of a feminist perspective. And we're really kind of like trying to tap into the researchers who are looking at the historical narrative and trying to sort of look at where these women sort of got a bad rap and trying to, you know, show more of how they played a role from a powerful standpoint, as opposed to sort of more of a background ceremonial role. Um, and it really does kind of map onto women's history um, and feminism and sort of writ large. So it's been really fascinating. I launched that with her, let's say in August. So it's just been a couple months. We're still getting started, but there's definitely some tie-ins there to American Girl. There's like the historical tie-in and there's the just sort of um, feminist tie-in, I'd say. It, it was actually really fascinating for me to hear Nancy Holyoke say that you know, that no one at the magazine considered it to be feminist or they didn't mm-hmm. talk about it in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was like, huh. She was like, we, we talked about it in terms of empowering girls. So like having girls do unexpected things like riding in rodeos and being, you know, beekeeping, whatever. Right. Um, uh, to me, I guess that it, that is feminism, but I, it may, might just be like semantics, but um, it was in, sort of encouraging girls to sort of take on really any kind of adventure or career trajectory, like crazy idea, whatever, sort of like encouraging them to like push their boundaries, which I thought was really cool. Um, so, so yeah, I think there's definitely um, that sense that it sort of maps onto what I'm doing now in, in that sense. So that's really cool. Definitely. Yeah. We speak about this a lot on the podcast, but American Girl really shared like a young girl's role in, um, throughout history and Mm -hmm. during historic events. And it was a perspective that we didn't often hear in school. Like where were the girls, where were the women? So I'm so excited to dive in further, but were there any stories that like particularly surprised you about the first ladies and maybe their, their roles within politics or in the white house or, well, I I can tell you guys a little bit about a story I'm working on now that it should actually be published by the time this airs, but it's about, um, Mary Todd Lincoln and her interest in like spiritualism and seances. Um, so she had before her husband was assassinated next to her, she literally had already lost, I think two of her four sons and then later three of her four sons. So she was just like a woman who had like devastating loss in her life. And she had this very like deep interest in, you know, this sort of movement sweeping the country called spiritualism, where people thought that they could talk to the dead. Mm. Um, And she had actually up to eight seances in the White House, which is kind of crazy to to think about. Um, And it's, it's interesting, because there's a lot of research that ties in spiritualism to the women's um, suffrage movement. Um, And it was just kind of a way for a lot of these famous mediums that a lot of whom were speaking with Mary Todd Lincoln, we're sort of able to have businesses and travel the country and sort of have prominent voices um, about, you know, society at a time when that was not allowed. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been fascinating to, to dive in. Yeah. That sounds so cool. I feel like I was listening to a podcast that touched on the topic. It was specifically talking about 
the topic of like spiritualism and seances. And I feel like they mentioned Mary Todd Lincoln. They also mentioned um, Harry Houdini's wife Oh, yeah. as um, just part of the greater like overarching narrative of like notable people who engaged with that. And it, it's so interesting. I, I can't wait to read more about it in your story. <laughs> Definitely. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm hoping your subscribers would be interested in checking it out. For sure. I feel like it's like American, it's like American girl characters <laughs> that are real, but kind more of, yeah. adult, adult <laughs> centered. yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, for sure. wow, that's so interesting. I'm so excited that you are sharing those stories and bringing those to light. I'm really excited to dive in. Yeah, it's been a cool sort of interesting journey. The, really, it's my colleague, Jen Taylor, has just been doing, she's been doing such an incredible job. So um, kudos, like hats off to her. She's doing awesome. I'm, I'm like definitely writing, you know, where I can and helping, but like it's, it's Yeah. her project and she's doing such a great job with it. I'm super proud of her. Incredible. I have a question about your, you know, you mentioned that you eventually went into nonfiction writing for a couple of different reasons, but do you think that you would ever venture back into fiction territory? Um, yeah, I do. Um, thanks for asking that. It's, it's, it's sort of been bubbling up recently in my brain as something I would potentially do. And it's funny because I actually just saw on Twitter today, my good friend, Julia Dahl, who is, um, she, she works with me at CBS News and she's now actually a murder mystery writer. <laughs> um, and yeah, she's awesome. And she wrote that she's um, hold, holding classes for either journalists who want to become Uh, fiction writers or the other way around fiction writers who want to become journalists because she sort of had her foot in both worlds and she's also a teacher um so yeah like it, I don't know where I would start I guess it's a little bit overwhelming to think about where I would start like how I would make money you know etc but there's definitely a part of me that's like kind of tugging at me like to do that again and I've started to like dip my toe into it a little bit so um definitely something I'm interested in exploring further Oh, that's so exciting. I, I love that. I think, you know, it's just kind of like a full circle moment back to the the story that, that Yeah. won the, the won the contest. So that's that's so cool. <laughs> right. I love Yeah. that. <laughs> And it helps definitely to have encouragement from, you know, people like you guys and your subscriber subscribers that, you know, I, I think when you're a writer, you often don't have a lot of um, feedback on your stuff. So when you get feedback, it's super amazing to have and like very encouraging. So yes, thank you guys. Really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely oh my goodness well I mean if you venture back into the spooky territory we will Yes. <laughs> be loving it Yeah. Wherever I go, it will probably be spooky. I just don't see <laughs> how it could not be. I'm just too interested in that, Politico. <laughs> that oh my that god feels right <laughs> I love that Erin this has been so wonderful to connect with you to hear about your journey as a writer especially starting off with your first byline in American Girl magazine and something that we like to ask all of our guests who join us on the podcast is what lasting impression did American Girl leave on you? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the big one was just confidence and, um, you know, being given sort of a platform at like that, like that level of platform at such a young age definitely had a huge impact on, you know, thinking that my work was important and that it mattered. Um, so that was, that was huge. But, but I think also, 
you know, just, it, it felt very much like it encouraged me to sort of like push my boundaries and even in very little ways, like, um, Hey, did you think about trying this for your Halloween party? Or, you know, did you think about beekeeping or what, whatever hobby? I mean, I think it opened my mind to, um, to sort of living in a way that you could sort of gravitate towards the things that interested you most um, rather than sort of staying in sort of a box. And, and I think that that is an important skill to have early on, an important, you know, skill to have instilled in you or reinforced to you as a, at a young age, because it can be very easy to get like boxed mm-hmm. in by society and like have um, by whoever, by society, by your parents, by your friends, whatever, to like be told um, who you are and be told what you should do. And you kind of have to like learn to actively push back against that to sort of live in sort of an independent way that sort of aligns with your like natural skills and talents and like your likes and the things that you love to do. So, yeah, I think that really is like a, a skill that you have to kind of learn. So, so I'm, I know for me that American girl really um, drove that home and I, and it, I get the sense that it did for like a lot of other girls as well. So I, I hope that that, you know, had an effect on our, a good effect on our generation. I think it really did. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, the, the magazine was just, and I feel like, you know, a lot of the times on this podcast, we like lead with like a, like doll approach, but the magazine, like impact cannot be understated with the amount of storytelling that was being done and also the amount of storytelling that they were allowing their contributors to do. And I, I agree that I think like it just instilled like a sense of confidence to number one, like have yourself represented in a publication like that, that was geared towards young girls, but also, um, you know, to be able to even contribute in some ways to that publication is huge. And I, I don't know what that, what today's equivalent is, but I, I hope that there is something that makes young girls feel that way today whether it's an Instagram or you know even like or like journaling or something like Mm -hmm. that you know helps like build those those feelings of confidence you're talking about yeah absolutely absolutely I think even just a little like a little bit can go a long way at that age too right yeah like having having that possibility be open Mm -hmm. you know I think it's just so impactful to see the different ways that girls around the country are participating in different hobbies and yeah really having that confidence built you know it seemed like the world was ours yeah yeah absolutely and I definitely don't like I would get that message certainly from my parents like you can do whatever mm-hmm. you want you can do whatever a boy can do blah 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 but I don't remember yeah. any other like publication that was I was getting that message from well Erin if you were an American girl character and you had a doll created in your likeness, what three accessories would this doll come with? (laughs) Wow, this is an amazing question. Um, (laughs) I I can't say like iPhone or whatever. (laughs) Like probably that's like the one thing I'm like attached to. But I mean, that's that's a given. Let's say I know, right? All dolls come with the iPhone, right? <laughs> um, but like, I guess. Well, let's see. Okay, so car, 
definitely a car. I love it. I love my my car. I had it even when I was in the city and Brooklyn and Bay Ridge, which is like the worst parking neighborhood ever. (laughs) And I was like driving around the block for hours looking for parking. I don't care. I need my car. (laughs) We love it. And now they offer like cars for dolls, like with the modern dolls. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I saw somebody, (laughs) well, it was for his cat, but I saw somebody on Instagram getting his cat, like a little Tesla or something. I was like, I don't know <laughs> so funny. Oh my gosh, I'm trying to think what else. I guess, you know, like like a pen or a notebook or something like something, you know, that's kind of lame, but you know, it's something that would indicate yeah. that I'm a writer and then love it. headphones because I listen to music all the time. Love <laughs> it. I love that. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Do you guys get to answer that question too? Oh, we can for the no, you first don't have to. T- for the first time. <laughs> I yeah. I'm like I'm, I'm shook- just curious. I'm shook by how good this question is, Lindsay. That's a great question. Right? I know we have to like bring this into the rotation. Yeah, I think one of my primary accessories would be my dog. Okay, and then I think I would have like a cup of like iced coffee. Nice, and then maybe like a little purse. I've always like been like a little purse girl, even when I was a kid. So I feel like those are my main three. Oh, I love that. (laughs) All right. I'll go with a podcast microphone. Oh, cute. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's number one. Um, I'm going to do taper candles as my Mm -hmm. second because I love to (laughs) set the mood. Um, And the third accessory. Oh, my goodness. This is actually hard. And I didn't give this any thought (laughs) before. a Maybe. headband. Yeah, a headband. That's perfect. perfect. I'm not wearing a headband at this moment, but I often am. So that is perfect. <laughs> Love that. Love that. I I feel like I want a fourth though, because now that you mentioned your dog, I feel like I need I need my cat too. Totally. Yes. <laughs> Pets have to be included. I think that it would be great if my dog was represented as an accessory. <laughs> he would be so cute. Um Aww, what kind of dog is he? He's like a little chihuahua mix. Um, so, you know, very fun for little girls to to play with if American Girl wants to make an accessory of my dog <laughs> at some point. They, they do actually have a chihuahua and I'm like, hmm, maybe I would get that for myself yeah. just to have. But obviously you are a contributor to American Girl magazine famously, but if you could have contributed to any other section and, you know, there are so many good sections in the magazine. There's the help section. There's the paper doll section. There's the like, who's that girl section where it's like a famous person and you have to like guess who they are by their childhood photos. Is there a section that you feel like you would have liked to contribute to besides your story? Yeah. Um, I would say it's probably a toss up between the help section and the, the paper dolls. I, I always thought the paper dolls were just so cool. And I, mm-hmm. I just sort of personally feel really connected to um, both my grandmas when they were still alive and just, you know, like to have that sort of representation of genealogy is like awesome. I'm not like a super into genealogy, but for whatever reason, I think the combination of the paper dolls, cause I had a bunch of other paper dolls. Like I was for a while there, I was like legit into paper dolls. Um, and then the health section, just because I think, I think also like, I, well, I would, probably be more interested in like responding to the advice rather than like asking (laughs) for advice but like it's just kind of a a cool way to 
offer my take on, on whatever people's problems are. And, you know, you know, I'm often kind of like tend to be an advice giver type of person. So I think it would be interesting to, to go that route. Yeah. Absolutely. The the help section was the, my favorite section of yeah, the okay. magazine. I was a little bit judgmental though. I'd be like, this person needs to get their shit together. Like, <laughs> like what are they doing? Um, oh but I always admired the way that the prompts were answered because they were yes. very non-judgmental, mm-hmm. um, but, but also very clear about sort of keeping like a moral compass to the problems without being like, you know, you have to do this or shaming anybody. Um, So I would love a, I would love a help like that in like a current magazine for my adult adult problems, but. I would love that. And I I love that they took the, the problem so seriously too, even though like, you know, these were problems that 11, 12 year old girls had. So they weren't, you know, some of them were, Right, a li- like a little on the trivial side, but like, <laughs> right. but they never treated it that way. They were always, they were always like, "This is, this is important, and it can be hard to be in this situation when you're that age, and dealing with friends can be hard, and dealing with parents can be hard." And it was almost like they were trying to be like empathetic to, to like your plights or whatever, yes. and like mm-hmm. sort of make it a little bit more broad. You know, like this can be something that if to, to make you feel like you weren't alone, like this can be something that affects all sorts of other girls that are your age too, which I thought was really cool. Definitely. And the advice, like it was so measured and really holds up today. Like I've read like a lot of like publications from like the 1960s or like advice columns from like, I don't know, 50 years ago. And like the advice is just like all over the place. Like this is actually like smart, like stood the test of time advice. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's really impressive. It is impressive. And I really wish something like that was still around. I'm just speaking of the magazine in general. Right. Likewise. (laughs) Likewise. I know we hear that a lot from like our followers being like, can someone just like make an American girl magazine for like adults already? Like, (laughs) yes, totally. (laughs) Trilling to take that on one day, maybe. Um, (laughs) I know. Well, Erin, this has been such a joy to have you on our podcast today. Thank you so much for taking the time to connect with us and share more about your experience. It's just been such a joy to chat with you. Oh my gosh. It's been so fun. Amazing to just go through this really pivotal part of my childhood (laughs) with you guys. And just thank you so much for the interest. And I'm so like honored to know that the story resonated with so many people. It truly did. Now, where can everyone find you after this? I would definitely encourage people to check out East Wing Magazine. And if you want to subscribe, you can do that too. You can just go to eastwingmagazine.com. Amazing. We will absolutely do it. And we will post also where our followers can do it if they would like to subscribe. But Erin, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. And everyone, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. And now, here is The Ghost Who Became a Girl by Erin Donahue, read by Rebecca Reimer from her YouTube channel at RebeccaJ82, which we'll link in the show notes. Enjoy! Jamie had warned her a thousand times, but she never listened. Lydia turned onto the winding forest trail that led to Dead Man's Creek. She recalled the, the fight she had, she had just had with her older brother, Jamie. He didn't like Lydia going to the creek. 
He believed it was haunted by the ghost of a girl who had fallen into the creek and perished over 100 years before. Along with the rest of the town, Lydia thought sullenly. Ever since Lydia's first glimpse of the creek three years earlier, she had felt almost a force urging her to come. It was her own private place. Jamie warned her to stay away, but she never listened. Lydia was a pretty girl, with thick raven hair that hung down her back in curls. She had a small red mouth and green eyes outlined by long black lashes. Her nose was short and stubby, which she hated. Lydia was shorter than everyone else her age, about four feet ten inches. Lydia reached the creek. She sat on a moss-covered rock and watched the churning water before water below her. The birds twitted softly and chipmunks and squirrels scampered up the trees. Lydia was instantly trapped by the magic and mystery of the creek. <clears throat> Sometimes she would sit like this for hours. Lydia didn't think Dead Man's Creek was a suitable name for such a beautiful place. Why, the creek was one of the most lively places she had ever seen. Lydia knew the name came from the legends about a ghost. She continued to stare into the deep water. Suddenly, Lydia heard a plunk in the water. She turned to see a girl about nine, skipping stones in the creek. The girl was about eleven yards away from Lydia. She had thick blonde hair pulled back into two braids that hung just above her shoulders, round cheeks, and blue eyes. The girl was wearing a blue cotton sundress. She also turned. When she saw Lydia, she vanished. Lydia reasoned that the girl had been frightened and had run away so quickly that it only seemed that she had vanished. Satisfied, Lydia, re Lydia relaxed and continued her daydreaming. <clears throat> Lydia was reluctant to leave when the sun began to set but she wasn't allowed out after dark. She stood and began to walk the half-mile home. It was the next day. The sun was shining, the birds were singing, and Lydia was in high spirits. What a perfect day to go to the creek. Lydia ran all the way through the woods to the creek. The creek seemed even more beautiful than usual that day. What little light managed to get through the dense canopy of trees above Lydia's head sparkled on the crystal, crystal water, making it shine and glimmer. To Lydia, the creek was like a real person with emotions and feelings. Today it was bursting with energy. Lydia felt the same way. She noticed something blue high up in a tree across the street. Why, it was the girl she had seen the day before and she was wearing the same blue cotton sundress. The girl was sitting on a sturdy tree limb, staring into the rushing water. Hi, hello there, Lydia called up to, up to her over the roar of the water. The girl glanced back down by her. By the expression on her face, she was clearly startled. My name is Lydia. Who are you? Lydia didn't have a chance to say anything more. The girl vanished. Lydia's curiosity overwhelmed her. She crossed the small log bridge to the other side of the creek and went to the tree 
the girl had been sitting on. There are no footprints in the mud. Lydia was confused, but she didn't see the girl any more that day. That night, Lydia had a dream. The girl was in Dead Man's Creek, and the current was carrying her downstream. The girl was struggling to keep her head above the water. Her arms were outstretched as if reaching for something. Lydia was sitting on the moss-covered rock, but for some reason she could not help the girl. Help me, the girl cried. She stretched out her arms toward Lydia. Help me. Her head began to sink below the water's surface. Just before she went completely under, she screamed, Lydia, help me. Lydia woke up. Daylight poured through her window. She squinted and rested on her elbows. That was really weird, she said aloud. Something is going on at the creek, and it has something to do with that girl. I don't quite understand it yet, but today I'm going to the creek and finding out. After Lydia was dressed and ready, she pulled on her windbreaker and pushed open the front door. And where do you think you're going, young lady? Lydia turned to see her mother with her hands on her hips. Don't tell me. To the creek. Well, Lydia, I thought you had a history report due on Monday. Well, I do, but I suggest you go to the library right now to finish it up. If you ask to use the microfilm machine, it might help you with your report. What's a microfilm machine? Lydia asked. It's a machine that has newspapers from long ago. You turn a knob and the newspaper goes by on the screen. But can I, no Lydia, go to the library? There was no arguing with that. Lydia sighed, grabbed her rusted bicycle, and pedaled to the library. Soon she was sitting before the screen of a microfilm machine, turning the knob and watching the newspaper whiz by. She was looking at the newspaper for May 1874. Then something caught her eye. It was a small article that went like this. The body of Susan O'Connor of Fort Orchard Road was found today in the creek. She was the daughter of Frederick and Cornelia O'Connor and was their only child. Susan O'Connor was suspected to have fallen into the creek, but how or why it happened has not been found out yet. Funeral services will be held at the cemetery 10 a.m. on Monday. Lydia looked at the picture. Susan had been pretty, with two blonde braids that hung just above her shoulders. She had a small red mouth, round cheeks, and blue eyes. She seemed so familiar. Lydia set, let out a short scream. Susan O'Connor was the girl she had seen near the creek. Susan was the ghost of Dead Man's Creek. The legends were true. A million things flashed through Lydia's mind at once. The date of the newspaper was May 14. Today was May 14. Today was the anniversary of Susan O'Connor's death. Lydia remembered a movie she had seen about a ghost who appeared to a girl on the anniversary of the ghost's death and reenacted the entire death. The girl saved the ghost, and the ghost could rest in peace. Maybe that's what Susan wanted. Maybe that's what Lydia's dream meant. Susan had been... Susan had been asking for help. She could be drowning in the creek right now. If Lydia saved her, then she could rest in peace. But what if it was too late? What if Susan had already drowned in the creek? 
Lydia left the microfilm machine on and ran to out of the library. Then she grabbed her bike and pedaled as fast as she could to the creek, gripping the handlebars so hard that her knuckles turned white. She reached the creek, parked her bike, and jumped off. What if she was too late? But she was not too late. She could hear a soft voice calling, uh, upstream calling, for help. As it came downstream, the voice became louder. It was Susan. Relief and nervousness flooded Lydia at the same time. How could she save Susan if she was in the middle of the creek? Lydia carefully stepped onto a small rock in the creek. Then she stepped into another and another, being careful not to slip and fall into the icy water. She reached a big rock in the middle of the creek and squatted down. Then she reached out her arms. Susan was coming downstream with her, arms outstretched like in the dream. Grab my hands, Lydia called to Susan. She caught Susan by the arms. Suddenly, Susan's face was evil. She smiled wickedly as if she had completed an evil task and laughed menacingly. <laughs> then with more, much more strength, one would have expected from a nine-year-old girl, she heaved Lydia into the creek. The icy water swallowed her up. Susan hadn't wanted, help, hadn't wanted help at all. She wanted Lydia to die in the creek as she had. Then she could rest in peace. Lydia struggled to get her head above the water, but her feet were trapped. The last thing Lydia saw was the water wavery image of Susan above her in the water. Her eyes flashed an evil red, and she vanished. Then everything went black. No one ever found Lydia in the creek. She perished just as Susan had. The police found Lydia's bike parked at the creek and found the article she had left on the microfilm machine. They knew it was linked to her death, but they didn't know how. Now Lydia, instead of Susan, is the ghost of Dead Man's Creek. There have been reports of passerby claiming to see a pretty young girl with thick raven hair, green eyes, a small red mouth, and a short stub of a nose. About four feet ten inches tall at the creek. Sometimes she is seen sitting on a moss-covered rock. Other times she stands on the log bridge. She is always staring into the water. Perhaps, like Susan, she will pick a young girl as her victim. One who is, enchan one who is enchanted with the creek and comes there often. Watch out. It could be you. There's also an author's note here, and it says, Meet the author, Aaron Donahue. My story started with the idea of a ghost that needed help, but really needed to kill. Then I added a creek to set the scene for danger. I threw in a legend for a spooky element. I've always loved writing, and I am overwhelmed at being published. And this was written by 11-year-old Aaron Donahue. And at the time, in 1994, when this was published, she um, lived in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Thanks for watching.
Thank you for listening to American Girl Women. For more AG Women content, follow us on IG at American Girl Women or send us your American Girl stories via AmericanGirlWomen at gmail.com. We might just read them on the pod. If you like this podcast, tell your friends and rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts.